Well, it's always a pleasure to be here, and I understand there are a number of new families here. Uh, my name is Paul Wrigley. I'm a, a retired Navy chaplain. I'm a PCA pastor. And about three years ago when Pastor Carlos was on sabbatical, I preached about half the time. And sometimes when he goes off, I'll get a text uh, saying, can you fill in for me? And one time when he was sick, on a Saturday, I got a text, hey, can you preach for me tomorrow? I'm at death's door, and so uh, I was able to do so, so delighted uh, to be here. Um, before I was a chaplain, uh, I was a pilot, I used to fly the skies around here, and I'm dating myself right now, uh, because I flew the A6. Some of you younger folks may not know what the A6 was, it was medium attack. So I uh, flew that, was a flight instructor teaching students land on aircraft carriers, got married to my wife Kay, and then the Lord led me from the Navy to seminary where I be, uh, became a chaplain. So again, delighted to be here. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew 7 from the Sermon on the Mount, verses 15 through 20, as Jesus talks about false prophets. And so hear the word of the Lord. He says, Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us. And Lord, that as Jesus warns, we would have discerning years, that we would look at what your word says to evaluate what is said. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time I was here, I preached from Deuteronomy 13 on Moses' warning against false teachers and the need to follow the Lord. And in this passage on the Sermon from the Mount, Jesus warns his followers against, against false prophets and how to evaluate them. Paul and Peter likewise warn of false prophets and teachers. And the problem remains today. Some churches nowadays are preaching a message in the name of Christ, that minimize the necessity of the gospel and the sanctity of life. They redefine marriage, gender, sin, and morality. And we have an obligation, we have a duty to evaluate such messages and take action as necessary. So let's take a closer look at what Jesus says. And so this morning, I'll be looking at false prophets, how to recognize false prophets through the test of fruits, and then judgment on false prophets and teachers. So as we begin this morning, let's talk about prophecy in general. Um, in the immediate context, Jesus is talking about Old Testament prophets. And John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. This is before the cross, before his resurrection, before he ascends into heaven. And so we may say, how does this relate to us today when we hear uh, these warnings against false prophets. Prophecy and prophecy is a spiritual gift that's mentioned in Romans. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 4. And I looked up in the Dictionary of Evangelical uh, Theology, which says this. It's under their article, Prophets uh, Under Spiritual Gifts. It says, The prophets of the New Testament church often seem to have been itinerant preachers. Moving from church to church, they built up believers in the faith by teaching the word. 
On occasion, God would make his will known through the prophet, Acts 13, or a future event that would be foretold, Acts 11 and Acts 21. But the prophet's special gift was the edification, exhortation, consolation, and instruction of the local churches. In the sub-apostolic period, the prophet to the local ministers who uh, preached uh, the word to edify the members of the uh, Christian fellowship. And in this uh, article on the gift of teaching, it says this, the prophet was a preacher, a teacher explained what the prophet ex- uh, proclaimed, and the teacher would offer systematic instruction, and it references 2 Timothy 2, 2 to the local churches. So again, how does this apply to us today, this uh, idea of prophecy? Well, Tim Keller, who's also from the PCA, has an interesting article on discerning and exercising spiritual gifts. And he breaks down the spiritual gifts into the three categories of the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And here's how he describes the prophetic gifts. They are abilities based on understanding and articulating truth. They represent God to others and are marked by boldness and clarity. Biblical examples are evangelism, which he calls the ability to help people believe, teaching, or to be a teacher, the ability to help people learn, speaking, the ability to articulate in a compelling way, probably publicly, knowledge, discerning spirits, which he says is insight, or the ability to tell the authentic from the false, and prophecy, which is our concern here. He says that's the unusually dynamic or illumined truth-telling. He also referenced uh, Vern Porthos, who's a professor at um, Westminster uh, Seminary, and he has a book that you can get from the PCA bookstore on what are the spiritual gifts. So Keller references that, and here's what um, Vern Porthos says about the spiritual gifts. He says, the Holy Spirit is present and blesses us through the sermons and exhortations from fellow believers, but the messages are always fallible and must be checked by the standards of Scripture, by the standards of the Bible. And that's essentially what Jesus says. You have to recognize them by their fruit. And so what we would say today is this gift of prophecy um, is not infallible. It ceased after the apostolic age. There is no new revelation. No, thus saith the Lord, unless the preacher is quoting Scripture. And again, in a footnote, uh, Tim Keller uh, says this. He says, the note on the charismatic gifts, the nature of these gifts, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, healing, miracles, are obvious points of division today in the church. He then uh, comments that our denomination, the PCA, holds that no spiritual gift brings new extra-biblical revelation from God. And these are things that we have to consider if somebody proclaims, thus saith the Lord, they claim to be a prophet. So he says, what do we think of prophecy in tongues? He says the subject is um, too uh, big to explore here. And he suggests, again, an article from Vern Porthrus, which that book addresses in a uh, compressed form. He goes on to say, um, this view does not believe that the miraculous gift described in the New Testament have continued, but there are modern versions of these gifts. And he goes on, for example... This holds that prophecy with a little p, he says, unusual insight, forceful foretelling, continues but not the infallible God-inspired revelation of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. And so what is foretelling? Sometimes the word today is speaking truth to power. You hear that everywhere. 
The church has responsibility to do that. And again, Vernon Porthrus uh, says this, post-apostolic gifts are infallible. They are dependent on Scripture and do not add to the biblical canon. They are thus uh, analogous to the, but not identical with the apostolic gifts and messianic gifts. The apostolic gifts referred to what Peter and Paul had, and clearly the messianic gifts only belong to Jesus Christ. And so I laid it out as kind of a background because uh, Jesus was referring to the Old Testament prophets, but he does warn as he talks about the end times of false prophets and false Christ who will come to try to deceive believers, who will try to deceive the elect. So we need to be aware. And in fact, in verse 15, he gives us his command. He says, beware of false prophets. According to the lexicon, that word has the idea of turn one's mind to, to be concerned about, care for, to pay attention. In this context, in this verse, it means be careful to be on guard. In the context, it immediately follows Jesus teaching about the narrow way and the wide way. And what does he say? In verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide that is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. After he says that wide gate destruction, narrow gate life, he talks about Beware of false prophets. Um, and so that is the context here. And I preached on it last time, but we have Moses' warning, which is still relevant uh, for us today. Because in Deuteronomy 13, Moses warns, If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and wonder, he tells you, comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and says, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So that's from the Old Testament. But Paul also warns us in the New Testament in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. And this is relevant today. He admonishes them, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as I mentioned last time, it's a strong word. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let him be accursed. And so what do we be on guard against? We are to be on guard against false teaching, the call to serve other gods, a distorted gospel that presents a false Jesus. And you hear that. Well, there's a historical Jesus, which we really can't know. And there's the Jesus of the Bible, one of faith. They are the one and the same. But there are those who say, no, they are different. That is false teaching. We have to be on guard for twisted teaching that would draw disciples away or destructive heresies uh, that we are warned against. And so we have that command to be aware of. But in this passage, Jesus goes on and he describes the false prophet and I would also say the false teacher because they are linked together. What does he tell us? 
First of all is they are deceptive. They are dressed in uh, sheep, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And again, through this, Jesus really is using illustrations that the people would understand. Um, and so the lexicon says of this wearing a sheep's clothing is um, used metaphorically only to pretend to be harmless of the ways of a false teacher, disguising destructive intentions, and this common sheep's clothing is acting hypocritically, pretending to be good. That is what they do. And R.T. France in his commentary on this passage says this, the imagery of wolves dressed as sheep not only indicates that their destructive intentions are hidden behind a mild facade, but also draws on the common Old Testament metaphor of God's people as his flock. You see that all throughout the New Testament. They want to be accepted as belonging to God's people. And that, again, is part of the danger why we have to be discerning. How did this affect me when I was in the Navy? Well, as a Navy PCA Protestant chaplain, we were combined with other chaplains. And when I first started, he had those who were Jewish, and then he had Christian. There were no Muslims or Buddhists. And then he had the Catholic and Orthodox on one side, Protestants on the other. So where would you put the Mormons? They wore a cross in their collar like I did. But historic Christianity would call them a cult. And yet they would be molded, they would be folded into the Protestants, which would become an issue. And oftentimes they were not allowed to preach in the rotation. Uh, one chapel out west, single chaplain was replaced by a Mormon uh, chaplain. And they are wonderful people, but their theology is off track. And so the whole congregation left the chapel. And my first year as a chaplain, we got a letter from the chief of chaplain's office that says something along these lines from the Mormons. We are like you. We can do what you can do, but you're not like us. You can't do everything that we can do. And in the PCA, we were forbidden from conducting worship service with non-Trinitarians. And that's what they were. We would work with them on a number of things, but when it came to worship, we could not worship with them. We could not coordinate with them because their beliefs were deceptive. And so that's the first mark of the false teacher is deceptive. Secondly, we are told that they are ravenous, that they are vicious wolves. Again, the lexicon talks about the wolf. And here it's metaphorically as a person with dangerous pretenses such as a false prophet, false teacher, or false leader. And by the way, as I hear this I kind of think a politician is kind of an aside. Oftentimes they're deceptive as well. Uh, but back to the passage here. It talks about ravenous wolves. Uh, they're vicious. And, the, and, and France talks about this. He says, The metaphor of wolves used for false teachers in the church as early as Acts 20 29. The lexicons referred to that before. We'll look at that in just a minute. And the New Testament is full of warnings against the damage that false teaching could do to the life and health of Christian congregation, which is why the congregation needs to be on guard, which is why the elders need to be on guard to the teaching. The added authority claim implied in what purported to be prophecy and so received directly from God made the prophets even more dangerous. So they were deceptive. They claimed to be something that they were not. They were ravenous. They were vicious. But they also came from within the Christian community. And this is where they are very dangerous. Again, this in the context, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Who's Jesus preaching to? He's preaching to disciples, lots of disciples, the disciple community. And we have Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts. He calls them and he talks about the fierce wolf from within who will speak twisted things to draw the disciples away. Uh, and here's what he says in Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. He says, pay careful attention. The same word as beware of, but a different context. But pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Not only there, but he also gives a warning uh, in 2 Corinthians. He says this, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. He also warns in 1 Corinthians 6, and right after the chapter where he admonishes the congregation for not imposing church discipline on this man who's engaged in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And so he then gives this warning. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he says with a very strong warning, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Two words for that, the passive and the active male. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. And that is the challenge uh, in all of this, that we uh, be not deceived. Um, the problem is you have churches that are teaching something different. You have teachers, uh, Christians saying, well, God doesn't really mean what he said. It kind of sounds like Satan in the garden. Did God really say? He's not really talking about sexual morality. What is important is, and you've heard this before, love wins. Doesn't matter what that relationship is, love wins. That is deception. Or they talk about homosexuality. God didn't really mean what he said in the Bible. And I remember one person said, oh, you believe in the infallibility of Scripture. Well, our church doesn't believe that. We don't teach that. And that's the concern. Um, I do a bit of uh, looking online, and this church was a member of the Alliance of Baptists. However, it was a group of liberal Baptists, and this is from their website, because they use the term prophetic. They began in 87 as prophetic voice in Baptist life. The idea of speaking truth to power. Today we are a faith community comprised of male and female laity and clergy, people of diverse sexual orientations, gender identities, theological beliefs, and ministry practices. We are seeing that today where historic Christianity is being mocked and God's people are being mocked and we must stand for the truth, but we do it in a loving way. Why? Because we have words of life. 
they have words of spiritual death if people were to follow them. And I looked at their statement on sex and gender and sexuality and says this, part of it. And listen to this. We affirm our experience that people of multiple kinds of loving relationships can live faithful and responsible lives as sexual persons. We acknowledge that people of all gender identities and all sexual orientations have sacred worth and dignity. And we are all made in the image of God. And they should all be treated with respect. But we should also lovingly lead them and share with them the truth. Part of what they advocate is the full inclusion of transgender and gender non-binary uh, persons. Uh, and they talk about prophets. They want to be prophets who challenge sexual injustice. But go back to what they said before. We affirm our experience. They are interpreting Scripture based upon their experience. It's the other way around. We should evaluate our experience by what the Scriptures say. And that's what uh, Jesus is talking about. So as we talk about this, I think of young children. What do they learn about deception? I think of a great story from Disney, and you all are familiar with this, Snow White. Is there deception in the story of Snow White? Sure there is. Again, you are familiar with the story. Uh, probably the younger kids a little bit more so than I am because it's been quite a while since I viewed that movie. Um, my grandkids certainly do. But the idea is, yes, Snow White, and she is beautiful. She has a wicked stepmother who is the queen. And she is vain, and she asks the mirror, mirror on the wall, what does she say? Who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror comes back and says, you are, O queen. Well, one day it says that Snow White is the fairest. And she is jealous. And what does she do? She calls for the huntsman to kill Snow White. He couldn't do it. He says that he did. She thinks that Snow White is dead until... She asked the question again, and what happens? Snow White is uh, called the fairest in the land. So using a potion to disguise herself as an old hag, remember she was a beautiful woman, she creates a poison apple that will put whoever eats it into a sleeping death, a curse that she learns can only be broken by love's first kiss. And she's certain that Snow White will be buried alive. She fakes a potential heart attack. She tricks Snow White into bringing her into the cottage to rest. And she fools Snow White into biting the poisoned apple under the pretense that it is a magic apple that grants wishes. And so here's the issue of deception. False teachers bring the poison fruit of doctrine and those who eat it and believe it, it leads to spiritual death. That's why we all need to be on guard for this. So we've talked about false prophets. Uh, now Jesus talks about how do we recognize these false prophets? He did in verses 16 through 18. He goes, you will recognize them by their fruits. The them is the false prophets in uh, verse 15. Um, and the Old Testament lays out a number of uh, tests of Old, uh, of Old Testament prophets. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22 gives a test of subsequent events, which is this. If what they have predicted does not come true, they're false prophets. Deuteronomy 13, 1, uh, which I had mentioned before, is a theological test. Even if the prophet prophesies something that is true, they do signs and wonders, but say, go after other gods, 
you are not to listen to them. That's the theological test. Then Jeremiah 23, 9 through 15 and others is what is called the ethical test. Their ungodly behavior gives them away. And one commentator says this seems to be most likely what Jesus is referring here with his metaphors about the fruit. And so it is behavior, but I would also say that it has to do with their teaching. There has to be a theological test. And so in verse 16, he uses the truth-free metaphor. Again, this is an illustration that he's using that the people would understand. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. The fruit is not specifically identified. Again, the lexicon uses fruit metaphorically in the sense of result, outcome, or deed. That's how it's used in verse 16 and in verse 20. And D.A. Carson, his commentary says this, one's fruit, not just what one does, but all one says and does will ultimately reveal what one is. And so they can't hide it forever with their conduct and with their words. And R.T. France says this, fruits are not specifically identified. It is thus predominantly an ethical metaphor, but I would also say a theological uh, issues, based on the assumption that true loyalty to God will issue an appropriate behavior by his people. So yes, conduct is important. However plausible their words, it is by the life they live that you can recognize those who are not true prophets, true teachers of God. And so then Jesus gives us a test. Again, he says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. He asks a rhetorical question, are grapes, uh, where are we here? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And of course the answer is no. And so he gives here a general observation. Thorns and thistles are bad and therefore cannot produce useful good fruits such as grapes and figs. And then Jesus gives a, a, the basic principle in verses 17 and 18, which is this. Trees produce only the kind of fruit which reflect their basic character, good or bad. And he uses what Carson calls a Semitic expression in a positive way and in a negative way of which we can test these false prophets. And so he does it in a positive way in um, verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And then he says it's slightly different. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. So it says it two different ways, trying to get the message across uh, for us. So, how do we put all this together? Essentially, then, the prophets and the teachers, the false prophets, they are the tree that produces fruit. The New American Standard says, good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. Actually, the, the initial word good and bad are different from the other word for, for good and bad, and the ESV does a good job of translating that. And so what we have here is the good tree, uh, the good prophet, is beneficial, useful, helpful, good, when used the vegetation, has the idea of healthy. And that how is it, that's how that word is uh, sometimes translated, and that's what it is here, a healthy tree. Um, the bad tree, that word for bad prophet or tree, um, means decayed, rotting, rotten, literally of decaying fish or fruit, no longer useful for food, more generally useless of no value or unfit. So when you put the two together, the healthy tree, the healthy, sound prophet, then produces um, 
healthy fruit, and I would also say healthy doctrine. Paul, as he writes in the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus, uses about six times the word which is translated sound, sound doctrine. The word also can mean healthy. In fact, it's where we get the word hygiene from. And so uh, the good prophet produces good uh, edible fruit. And so uh, he tells us, uh, and he tells Titus in uh, Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound teacher, healthy teacher, healthy tree, sound doctrine. But he also warns against diseased trees will produce bad or spoiled fruit or doctrine. And he alludes to this in 2 Timothy 4 where he says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound or healthy teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So then... We have to examine the fruit. Now, I don't do a whole lot of grocery shopping. My wife does that. But I have gone to get fruit. And how many of you, when you're buying fruit, you kind of pick it up and look at it before you buy it? Do you do that? Am I not the only one who does that? Okay. Now, what do you do when you get it home? Before you eat it, do you pick it up? I take it out of the thing. I look at that. If I see a big brown spot, depending on how big it is, I may cut it out. But oftentimes, I'll throw it away. We examine the fruit before we eat it. We examine the fruit of what somebody says. We listen to it and we evaluate what they say. And I was reminded of somebody who did this back when I was a junior in high school. I was not yet a believer. I was an acolyte in the Episcopal Church or like an altar boy. I thought I was a believer. I was religious. Thought that God graded on the curve. He doesn't. But... I was in this special class where they had a, a um, history and English together and we all stayed together. And this was back in 71. Yes, I'm dating myself. But I don't know how they did it, but they brought these Mormon missionaries to speak to our class. And I was not a believer. And I listened to what they said. And I said, wow, what a great story. It is marvelous. How can I learn more? Which is, they are Mormon missionaries. And I didn't really know her, and I was not a believer, but we had a girl in the class whose father was a pastor. She knew the Word of God, and she would just nicely kind of raise her hand. She'd ask some questions, and she'd ask questions based upon Scripture. And time and time again, this girl, this junior in high school, backed these Mormon missionaries into a corner with her knowledge of Scripture. What did she do? She evaluated what they said. She evaluated the fruit, saw it for what it was, and in a gentle way challenged him with Scripture. Now what that means is you need to know Scripture in order to do that. Ken saw this and says, oh my goodness, she brought the Westminster Standards. This, by the way, is a concise, reformed teaching of what the Scriptures say. And in the PCA and others, Elders and officers are examined on their knowledge of doctrine. And so that is uh, something good for us. And so, again, the idea is we need to know Scripture. Now, as we looked at the uh, prophets and, and uh, how to recognize false prophets, Jesus says what the destiny is in verses uh, 19 and 20. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
He repeats again from verse 16, Thus you will recognize them, that is, false teachers, by their fruit. This speaks of judgment on false teachers, false prophets. And here Jesus echoes the words, almost word for word, of uh, John the Baptist as he chastises the Pharisees. Here's what John says in Matthew 3.10. This is what's different. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So if you take an axe to the root of the tree, is that destruction or is that pruning? It's pretty severe pruning as we had a tree cut down in the yard that, that we're renting. So they cut it down, then they're going with root uh, grinders to grind out that root. This really speaks of judgment. Um, and it's not pruning for growth. Again, Jesus says in um, John 15, 2, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He then goes to, as he talks about fire. And again, a couple of verses later, Jesus says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and their branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And burning, again, in the Old Testament was used of judgment. And burning the tree was a natural extension of cutting the tree down. The lexicon referring to fire says this, it's used fictively in the future of divine judgment is also a place of punishment. So then, as we wrap this up, what does it mean for us today? Jesus warns about false prophets. He talks about how to recognize them, and he talks about their judgment. As we summarize, we are to be aware of false teachers. We are to evaluate them by their fruits, and that is their conduct and their doctrine. They will be judged. So how do we handle false teachers and false prophets today? It's the responsibility of all, the congregation and the elders, to listen to what is said. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 gives a good template, which is don't listen to the false teachers. Evaluate what they say. Follow the Lord. And that requires true faith and know the word. Last time I mentioned when I was at the academy with the navigators, they had five ways to get the word of God into your life. You can hear it, read it, study it, memorize it. But the most important thing with the thumb to grasp it is to meditate on it. And so we need to get the Word of God into our life and teach your children as well. And then lastly, according to Deuteronomy 13, is purge the evil from your midst. Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 5 in the reference of church discipline. Because remember, they come from within. And so it's the responsibility of the church to impose discipline on the offender. They may not know that what they're teaching is false. They may be deceived themselves uh, or they may be deceptive. But it's the responsibility of the congregation and the elders as well. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we have looked at your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would be discerning, that we would be like the uh, Bereans who examined what Paul said, examined the scriptures eagerly to see if what he said was so. And Lord, that you would bless this church with the preaching, that they would cling to the word of truth. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.